Welcome to another episode of the Speak the Language podcast. Uh, I'm particularly excited about this one. I feel like uh, ever since, probably honestly since last spring when we did the first episode with with Dr. Mike Chamberlain, I've really enjoyed doing these episodes where we get into more, um, we get the chance to dive into more actual you know, scientific stuff. Talk to y'all ask a lot, you know, sometimes me and Jordan answers on habitat stuff or turkey biology, and we're not the people to answer that. So we, we reach out to people that do know. And so I am joined here, uh, with Marcus Lashley, who has uh, agreed to come on the podcast today. Um, thank you for, for your time today, sir. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So love talking about turkeys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have that in common. Um, One thing I have a bad habit of doing, I'm not going to do it today, is I will jump straight into a conversation and not without any reference to, to who I'm talking to, who they are, or what they do. So before sure. we get into any real conversation, uh, if you would kind of introduce yourself, uh, what you do, look, just a little bit of background on you. Sure. So I, I grew up in the South hunting and fishing. And uh, in fact, the experience that I go back to that set me on the course for what I do with my life was sitting with my dad and hearing a turkey gobble in front of me and then seeing him come shredding in. And that set me on the course that I'm on. And this is, you know, coming from someone who is passionate about turkeys, love turkeys. I also love deer and deer hunting. And, and, uh, that set me on a course to become an ecologist. I'm thinking about uh, wildlife all the time and how to manage habitat for wildlife and particularly game species because that's what, you know, that's what resonated with me when I was a kid. So now I'm a professor at the University of Florida and I'm the director of the UF Deer Lab. Before that, I worked at Mississippi State with the MSU Deer Lab. And I've done a lot of deer work and a lot of turkey work. I'm probably a little more known, I guess, for the deer work because uh, I've been doing that for longer, but uh, always have been passionate about turkeys. And my specialty area is habitat focused. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking at uh, plant communities and how we can manipulate communities to meet different habitat needs for different species and particularly with deer and turkey. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's kind of the, the really short elevator version of, of who I am and what I'm about. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I appreciate that. Off kind of off subject question. Would you have been at Mississippi State the same time I was there? I was there around, I want to say like 2012 and 2014, somewhere in there. Yeah, uh, I started in 2015 on faculty. I actually got my bachelor's degree there, too, in forestry and wildlife management. And that was, let's see, I left in 2006. So I guess you'd have been right in between the the interim. So I was there from 2015 through 2019. And I just recently moved to University of Florida to to start the UF Deer Lab, which is uh, the UF Deer Lab is about deer and turkeys primarily. So if y'all... go tune into that we put out information about both of those species all the time yeah you'll do a good job you'll do I a very good that. job um so what i guess particularly what we wanted to talk about today um i feel like um you know you were we you mentioned habitat work and um i feel like me me and jordan were talking about this uh prior to when when i asked to have you on have you on the podcast is jordan actually brought it up He's, he was like man I feel like for whatever reason, uh, leading up to this spring, he said, I feel like I'm seeing more people 
out, you know, he's looking at social media, whether it be people mm-hmm. posting videos, pictures, Instagram stories, whatever. He's like, man, I feel like I'm seeing so many more people out there burning, you know, doing prescribed burns or, mm-hmm. or talking about burns or asking questions. Sure. And uh, I was directed to you as being uh, kind of a good source of knowledge on that subject as, as to, you know, the benefits of that. Why are people doing that? What are the drawbacks around burning and in, in reference particularly to the wild turkey? Yeah. Well, I don't know who misled you to me, but I'm happy to. <laughs> to talk about that. Now, I, I, uh, I would say that I get asked to talk about prescribed fire more than anything, mm-hmm. just, you know, when I'm, uh, on podcasts or, or, uh, speaking or whatever. And I I'm with you. I think I would love to think it's because of me, but I, I think just in general, uh, folks are starting to realize the important, or, or I would go on to say critical role that fire plays in conservation of wild turkey. But in, in you know, all of these game species that we know and love, especially in, uh, you know, the, the southern and eastern United States, all the way out into the Midwest, up in the upper Midwest, I mean, fire has been a, a really big part of how those systems function. Mm-hmm. For, for as long as they've been there and uh yeah there's no question that wild turkey is inextricably linked to the kinds of plant communities that are enhanced by prescribed fire and i think you know people especially you know there some of uh, dr chamberlain's data in particular are showing that that uh you know the resource may not be doing as well with turkeys as as we'd like so i think you're, you're sort of seeing those things to come together that there are a lot of people on the science side showing how critical of a role fire plays and then people on the ground you know the boots on the ground the people that love the resource that are managing their properties or managing uh, the public lands or whatever are realizing that fire has to be a part of that and uh, we're, we're hopefully making some headway and starting to get more burned yeah so let's start out, I guess, kind of on a basic level, because I'm, I'm taking this from, like I said, like I told you before we started recording, when it comes to burning, like I, I can list some benefits of it, um, sure. but I'm thinking about, I can remember when I was younger, I can remember that, you know, the, the turkey hunters that I looked up to that, you know, that were my teachers, so to speak. I can remember saying things like, you know, turkeys are always hanging around around prescribed burns, you know, or they're always going to be near there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was very, it was dug into my head early on that turkeys and prescribed fire went together. You know, they yeah. were, they were, they were allies. They weren't foes, yeah. but on a basic level, and I know this may be a large question, but I mean, it, if it could be broken down, what are just some things that, you know, when you say that the prescribed fire you know, when wild turkeys are linked, what are just some things that they do to, to help the wild turkey? Yeah. So I, I think the easiest way, that is a, a, a large scale question, like you said. Sure. Uh, but to break that down into really simple terms, let's think about it on the cycle of a fire. Mm-hmm. So what, when you burn, right, where we basically have a community of plants that are being burned and the fuels, you know, dead plant material that's laying around that is, that's what's being consumed by the fire. And all of that ash Mm -hmm. is left in there. And you also do things like expose seeds and uh, 
you know, insects, invertebrates that are bouncing mm. around in there that turkeys love to eat or succumbing to the fire. And essentially what you just said is describing that first stage, if we think about it, uh, you know, in, in terms of the stages of prescribed fire and how they affect turkeys. That is called the magnet effect. And basically when you burn an area, you have a magnet effect. And it's not just for turkeys. It's actually almost all species. It's pretty crazy in my lab. We we study a bunch of species and they all almost always without fail have a magnet effect. And that's just within the first few weeks after fire, there's a really strong preference for turkeys to use that recently burned area. And the thought is, is that there's all those seeds exposed and also all those dead insects laying around everywhere that are really attractive as a food source. Another thing, uh, if you've hunted around recently burned areas, I very commonly see turkeys strutting in those areas and mm -hmm. all that bare ground. I think it's just a really great place for, for uh, turkeys to, to strut and display. So that, that's kind of the first stage. Within a few weeks, the plants, it, depending on when you're burning, you know, let's say we were burning in the, the early spring, within a few weeks, it doesn't take that long before you have plants responding to that fire. Most of them are re-sprouting generally. They're perennial plants. They've been top killed and they have an intact root system and they shift up you know, their resources into growth and uh, you start this, this big green up, right? And I think this is where uh, a lot of folks don't realize the, the real big benefit that it can have with turkeys during that stage is it starts becoming all that vegetation is really high quality and it starts producing many, many more insects, which mm -hmm. are favorites of turkeys, particularly while they're raising poults. And you think about how big a poult is right when it's born. It's not that big. It yeah, only tiny. takes a few, yeah, it only takes a few inches of vegetation before it's actually pretty decent cover. And, you know, when, with that, that initial magnet effect that we were talking about a few weeks after, if that's available when poults are born and it's based on chamber, some of Chamberlain's work, uh, he put a number on it. If it was within uh, a thousand meters, I think is what he said, but basically a thousand yards uh, for, mm -hmm. for those that aren't thinking in metric. Uh, if you have that available to a hen that has young poults, she's going to take it to take those poults to that burned area. And it's probably for a lot of those same reasons. So if we sort of fast forward that, you know, if, if we look at the timeline as that vegetation grows, it continues to develop at a similar pace, probably even to the poults. And it provides pretty high quality structure for that first season. And you see them use it substantially for that first season. Now, uh, if we go farther in the cycle of prescribed fire, now let's move to a year after fire. Mm. Now that vegetation has developed and we have a structure that is extremely conducive to the bird using it and still having its defense, you know, its main defensive site is still in a condition that is really great for turkeys to use. And it's starting to develop a structure that is high quality for nesting. So if we move a little farther, once we start getting a little later in the fire return interval, those last couple of years, we're starting to get past uh, where nesting would occur. And when we would be burning again, it would be kind of out of that really high quality nesting cover phase by that point. And we would be starting the process over. 
right? So they still use that readily. If we get out past in most parts of the, the range of turkeys, if we get out past about five years, it starts getting pretty rank and uh, it's something that the turkeys aren't using very much anymore. So mm-hmm. really the whole process is having multiple times since fire so that we have multiple stages available because turkeys are using the different stages for different reasons and we continually are resetting that succession so just think about it you know we're moving plants back down under the the site level of turkeys and if you're successfully doing that on a recurring you know with a recurring fire regime turkeys can be really successful in that landscape and uh, without fire, unfortunately, right. the plants succeed out of, you know, something that is desirable for turkeys pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's all just thinking about the structure. The other thing that fire can do is influence the composition, particularly if you get to some non-traditional times of fire, particularly like late season fire, then we can really shift the composition of the plant community toward uh, forb dominance and Uh, that can be really important long-lasting effects that you can have on the community. I got to take a quick second to make sure I talk about the Onyx Hunt app. Guys, I'm not lying when I say this is something that I use every single day that I'm out turkey hunting. All of us do on the Primos team. It has so many incredible features that can make your decision-making process so much quicker, so much more efficient, and just makes it a pleasure to hunt. You don't waste a lot of time thinking, do I go this way? Do I go that way? Is this on my property? Is it not? I'll give you a real-life example. Just last week, I was hunting a property that I have not been on in at least two years. I'm out there trying to refamiliarize myself with the place, and I realized when I pull up my Onyx that two years ago, I dropped a waypoint on a spot down in the drainage where I had found some turkey sign. I walk within 200 yards of it, I yelp, and a turkey gobbles. That's just one example of how Onyx has helped me, and I promise you, it will do the same for you. So check out the Onyx Hunt app today. Use the promo code PRIMOS20 to receive 20% off your Onyx Hunt membership. When you say, when you're saying late season fire, yeah, um, as opposed, like at late season, what, what time frame specifically are you talking about there? Yeah, so I, I think this is a, an important issue that we should definitely unpack. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the traditional fire season, if you look at basically anywhere inside the, the wild turkeys range, but it really even you could go up to broader scales than that. Uh, but that traditional season is typically like a February, March timeframe. And mm-hmm. that would be our classic, uh, a lot of people would call that a dormant season fire, but it's like our prescribed fire season. And the majority of fire is set in those two months. Now, it's, it's a normal distribution throughout the year. So we have the peak of fire season then, but we have some fires that occur in the other months on either side of that. And then they kind of decrease as you go out. Uh, some of the recent data showed that the least utilized fire window is in the fall. So we were talking about like a late August, September, October timeframe mm-hmm. that we have a lot of good burn days, but not many people use those burn days. And that's what I'm talking about when I say late season, that particular timing, we have a lot of good burn days and we can have a pretty uh, strong effect on the community composition and and of plants. So mainly what's happening is all those, those sweet gums or, you know, whatever you have, wherever you're at, 
the the aggressive hardwood species that would typically be leading the transition from the understory to the midstory, we have a much better effect or much uh, better control of those species when we're burning late season like that. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder, do you have any any thoughts as to why there's not as many people that go after that? Because, I mean, just being me, I know that, I mean, that's pretty – pretty standard down here if you see a pine stand that gets you know gets way out of whack and needs burning it's usually just you can look at it it's overrun with sweet gum yeah yeah that's a really common problem if uh you get into the southern coastal plain and that might shift to to like turkey oak or gallberry or something like that Mm -hmm. uh you know it depends on where you're at and what that species is but there always seem to be a few of them that we're really trying to control when we're using fire but yeah you're right uh, as far as why people don't use that time frame very much, I think they're, that's multifaceted. Hmm. I mean, from an agency personnel, some of it is because that's the traditional fire season, right? Wildfire season. Sure. So, uh, you know, for, for decades, we've had uh, a lot of people that are in jobs where they're having to go and fight wildfire or they're having to respond to wildfires in their own state. So there, you know, some of that is going on. So the way that we uh, do resources, that probably carries over uh, also to the general public because they don't see the professionals, so to speak, using it at that time. I think a lot of it is probably um, a cultural thing as well. I mean, you know, we have a lot of the folks that are listening to this podcast probably like to sit down and listen to uh, look at college football during that time right or you want to go sit on a deer stand and i think there are a lot of things like that and and, you know really you can't point to one single thing but when you start adding them up all of a sudden virtually none of the burn days get used yeah because here's the thing like and this this goes to your point i think of it being of one of the factors being just a cultural thing because me like just me for example Mm -hmm. when i think about prescribed fires i think about the springtime i think about the the time window that that you referenced earlier february and march Mm -hmm. and so when you said late season i wasn't even thinking about the fall months i was like later in the spring or you know what are we talking you know what are we talking about here i didn't even consider those other months yeah yeah and that that's pretty common i mean i i got into this business because i love deer and turkey and i love those because i grew up hunting them and i've worked a lot with this community and thinking about fire and i've kind of gone farther and farther down the prescribed fire uh, path, I guess, as mm. trying to become an expert in that because I see the value in it. And I also see exactly what you're talking about. We, we had a very narrow view of what the use of prescribed fire has been over the past several decades. And I've been you know, doing a lot of work trying to figure out, are there actually biological reasons that we don't use those other times? Or on the other, you know, if we put the shoe on the other foot, are there biological reasons we should be using those other times? And Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's just one example of, you know, manipulating the timing, we could have a much stronger effect, long lasting effect on the community of plants that that we're targeting. It's wildly interesting. It really, I mean, that's, that's probably to me, again, uh, like I'm being, I'm probably being a little bit redundant, but I I didn't even think burning in in those fall months was even going to come up in this conversation that shows you i mean that proves your point i mean that proves your point as to how i guess just a 
it's become such a, a cultural thing or a known thing. You're like, you burn, this is the time window that you burn in. And to be honest without it, you know, some people, you know, you burn prescribed burns because you know, it's beneficial for turkeys. You may not mm-hmm. understand exactly why, but I mean, part of the reason why people like doing burns in, in that time frame is because that magnet effect that you, that you speak exactly. of, you yeah, know, they're exactly. thinking of, man, if I burn now, there's going to be turkeys all over this when season opens. Right. And I think that that is a great reason to have some of your burning being done at that time. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have burned on the day before a turkey opener with that in mind. And, you know, that the, you're going to have a six to eight week period where you have that magnet effect. Mm-hmm. And that's a really powerful thing to have during turkey season. So, uh, you know, it's great to have that in terms of affecting the community. You're not mm-hmm. really having a strong effect on the community composition at that point. You're really just managing structure, which there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Uh, but if we look at that from a historical perspective, you know, we, we kind of in the, the early 1900s, we sort of had this anti-fire campaign. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of transitioned into actually fire is really critical part of this. We need to get fire back. So we went through a few decades there where it was really just about getting fire back. And I think even, you know, the, the researchers, the, the uh, professionals that were using it, it was all about getting it on the ground. And the most obvious time to get people to use fire is during that, that uh, dormant season window. Mm-hmm. And we put a lot of focus on that for a long time and, and have put less emphasis on burning at other times. Mm. Interesting. So let's talk about, this is one that, that a lot of questions, and, I, and I'm sure you get questions about this a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talk, I mean, I know we've been talking about timing and we you talked about late season, but there's a lot of things that pop up about, how you time out when you're going to burn within the spring Mm -hmm. um, as far as that dormant season that you're talking about um, and the effects that those can, uh, that that can have as far as February, March uh, some people burn in April. And I know Mm -hmm. that, you know, I just would like to know your take on that. Yeah. So uh, you're going to put me on a spot here and I'm happy to to be on this spot. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on something right now. We're going to release it on social media, hopefully pretty soon. But I, I think one of the issues that people don't grasp is we're thinking about, you know, me and, and Mike and all, all these other folks, we're all enthusiasts and we want as many turkeys on the landscape as possible. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to figure out at a landscape scale, how do we accomplish that? And, you know, we were talking about what are the limitations to burning during the fall? Well, I'm going out farther than say, what are the limitations at burning at any given time of the year? And if Mm. you start thinking about, okay, I'm not going to burn in hunting season. So that's basically turkey season, you know, deer season. Okay. That's the majority of landowners, at least that I work with. That's a significant chunk of the year. Okay. We don't burn during the summer. All right. Well, if we narrow it down to just those two months and then we, well, we're only going to burn on the weekend because I have a nine to five, right? Or, you know, everybody's trying to get the contractor to burn on the same weekends or whatever. You know, we've narrowed it down to where on average, based on the weather conditions and when you could actually pull a permit, that's only a handful of days a year. 
right? So mm-hmm. I, I've been working on how to, what are the ways that we could expand the burn window so that people have more opportunity to use fire. And I think one of the big barriers that you were just kind of alluding to is, you know, people want to shut it off in about mid-March and probably not past the end of March, especially since turkeys start nesting, you know, about April 1. Mm -hmm. And they're nesting all the way up through mid-June somewhere uh, within their range. So, you know, that's been a major barrier. And there are a couple ways to look at this. And I, you know, I'm happy to take more questions if, if folks have it. I, I get, uh, I get targeted for this sometimes. I know Mike has told me that too, but the turkeys nest on the ground in a fire dependent ecosystem, you know, largely all of their range mm-hmm. at a time when nature burned it. Right. Right. So, if you look at the distribution of lightning generated fires, that occurs pretty much through nesting. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, when I look at that as an ecologist and I take a step back, it's like, man, that just doesn't make sense to me. If, if burning during nesting is such a big deal, why do they nest then? Or why do they nest on the ground in a fire dependent ecosystem? I started thinking about it that way because I've always heard you don't burn during turkey nesting. And, you know, you see that online, you see this, these viral uh, photos of a a hen's nest burning up. And I I don't like that any more than anybody else. But I also realize at a landscape scale to produce habitat that's going to support flourishing turkey populations, fire has to be a part of that. And there, you know, that's a limitation to the amount of acres that are getting burned. And Mm. I think, uh, the, the interesting data on that, and uh, Mike has done a bunch of that. I've been involved in a bunch. There have been several studies now in the southeastern United States with our colleagues and, and probably some of them a little less familiar with in other places. But when you really, when, when you really get down to it, because of where turkeys decide to nest, particularly within the fire cycle, like we were talking about that one to two year rough. Mm -hmm. Generally, when you're burning during nesting, they almost none of the nest are directly affected. In fact, on average, it comes out to about 2% of nest, I think is what it works out to. Really? And about 75% of the time that hen will re-nest. Now, most of the poults that she recruits come, you know, or not she, the population at the population level, most of the poults that make it through are the first nesting attempt hens. Mm-hmm. But my point in all of that is she does have the capability to take another try at it and potentially get some poults out. If you actually start, so, uh, you know, that's in systems where we're actually targeting burning during nesting. Now, let me caveat all of that. When I'm talking about burning and nesting, I'm not talking about burning 5,000 acre blocks during nesting. Right, right, right. right. That, that that's was going to be a question I had. <laughs> yeah, this is a scale dependent issue. And if you have your, your rathers and you, you would probably not burn your bigger blocks during that time, but if you can get a couple of extra 10 or 15 acre blocks during that time, virtually none of the nests will be impacted by that. And when you do impact one, she has the opportunity to potentially re-nest. Now let's think about that. This is the part where the rubber meets the road, I think, that Mm -hmm. nobody thinks about, including me until I really started digging into this issue. 
when we go and look across the southeast or or that's where i have most of my experience but across their range the the nesting success it's not as high as we would love it to be mm-hmm. but the poult success the poult rearing success is abysmal it, it's very poor in most places and based on what i just told you the first place that a hen wants to take her poults is to a recently burned area particularly just a few weeks after it's been burned and think about what that means biologically that means it would have been burned during nesting yeah so yeah you know basically i'm thinking about okay what what's going to influence poult success and if she is trying to take all of her poults to recently burned areas or early succession uh, you know, if you have old fields or something, that's another place or uh, some food plot plantings are really good as well. That's where she's trying to get her pulse. And I start thinking about it that way. And the fact that, you know, if she hatches a nest and her pulse all get uh, wiped out, that that's done. You're done for the year. She's not going to treat retry then. So yeah. that mm-hmm. that's where I think people uh, mess up on the way that they're thinking about that it's obvious that we don't want to burn up all the turkey nests but at least she has another chance but we're not thinking about that next life stage which needs access to really uh, to young burned areas and they probably have much higher success the the data on how that affects pulse success is not as strong but we have pretty strong evidence that burning during nesting is not having a strong negative impact. And when we put that in the context of the history of the, the, you know, the natural history of the animal, it starts to make a lot of sense. And that's where, you know, I'm not advocating that we burn huge blocks during that time, but if we can squeeze out or double even our burn days a year by carving out 10 or 15 acre blocks during nesting, then I absolutely encourage people to do that. That's that's wildly interesting. I mean, because I, I can remember, and I mean, I can remember getting like like verbally getting on to a buddy of mine because he was burning in like April, and I was mm-hmm. like, "Man, are you crazy? You're burning turkey nest up." Because yeah. that's what that's what I was taught, you know. I mean, that's right. I mean that was kind of a, a like he's just the same way we talked about it being a cultural thing that you really only see burning mm-hmm. in those dormant months the same thing like i was taught about you know about the same time i I was learned the same way i learned that fire and turkeys go hand in hand i was taught that burning is great but you don't do it in april because you're hurting the turkeys is that that is exactly the same thing that i was saying and you know let me caveat again i am someone who is obsessed with turkeys Mm -hmm. I, i love turkeys i'm thinking about turkeys all the time and i'm studying turkeys because i want more of them Right. And, and I study fire because I think that is a way to get more of them. And I'm, I, it's not a popular opinion, but that opinion is based on data. And, you know, when I look at the data, there, there's not really a good reason to avoid that time. Now, let's let's talk about the burn window again. We've yeah. got all kinds of things nesting during that time. So it's not just turkeys for some people. And then, you know, quail are nesting on farther into the year and they're nesting on the ground. And that's a, a common worry. You know, when we start whittling all these days down, I mean, you really do just get to a handful of burn days where you can pull a permit per year. And that I think is the bigger issue that we don't have, you know, we have so many barriers to burning. I mean, there's an entry barrier. If you have, if you're not familiar with it or didn't grow up doing it or haven't gotten training right there, there are lots of barriers and barriers and barriers. And, 
Uh, I'm just looking at all of them and trying to figure out which ones are really uh, ones that we should that shouldn't be a barrier. And I think the one that to me is is a, an enormous barrier is the issue of burning during nesting. And but when you put it within that context and the fact that I'm not telling you to go and burn several hundred acres even during that time in one block, I mean it. You know, I, I think that can start to ease some people's minds, but I'm the same way. You know, people scold me about that, that position, but I'm only taking it because I love turkeys and that's what the data tell us. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the same thing, you know, like it's the, the times that I've had Dr. Chamberlain on here, mm-hmm. uh, not as bad with the most, with the most recent episode, but the first episode we did. Uh, I know he got, you know, some heat for it. Uh, we got some heat for it because, and, and I don't take, I mean, obviously I don't take it personally. Uh, right. it, it's more of, I mean, from who that person's standpoint, you know, I'm trying to take away something that they love, you know, and, and I can mm-hmm. see you know, from that point of view, the, you know, going against something that they've been taught their whole life. But that's why I, I enjoy talking to to guys like Dr. Chamberlain and yourself, because, you're looking at this from like, I mean, you are a biologist, you are an an ecologist, but you're also a turkey hunter. You know, you're someone that loves this and you're, you're Mm -hmm. looking at, this is not opinion. This is stuff that you've been out there and studied and that's how you've come up with these answers. And that's what's interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, and I've done a lot of work with turkeys. I, I generally do a different kind of study than Chamberlain does in terms of the way that we study turkeys. But my, when I, you know, the stuff that I have worked on over the years with graduate students and published in peer-reviewed journals, it, it's very consistent. Fire consistently creates the plant community structurally and composition-wise that turkeys need and love. And they tell us that with the data over and over again. And that, that's why I'm, st- I'm right here talking to you about it. It's because mm-hmm. I love turkeys and I want to have more of them. I want to have generations after us enjoy that resource like I have. And fire has to be a part of that. Yeah. Agreed. So y'all, I mean, I'm assuming, I mean, if you could speak about it now, that would be great, but you might not can. Um, you kind of alluded to that something on this subject you are going to have released on social media pretty soon. Yeah. So I've been, uh, I've been trying to figure out what the best way to release the information, but I essentially went through the literature and found a lot of data and was trying to figure out how many burn days would we have if we are, you know, if we start taking away all these burn days for these different reasons. And of course, you know, if we whittle it down and then, you know, every person, they, you know, their kids having a birthday or they got to go to a wedding or whatever, right? Now, even on, unless you're absolutely prioritizing prescribed fire, you're, you probably have other things coming up on the couple of good burn days, or at least some of them. So what, what I'm trying to figure out is the best way to release it. But I think I'm going to do a video that actually just lays this whole thing out that we've just talked about and says, okay, if this is how many burn days based on the literature for the past 30 years, uh, how many burn days do you get per month? And then what are the barriers to people? and then start taking away days and let's see like practically how much could we get burned if we allow those things to be limitations and then kind of turn that around and say okay should they be limitations obviously depending on what state you live in whether or not college football should be 
uh, limitation is uh, highly debated. I grew <laughs> up in Alabama, and as you might imagine, the idea that we would burn on on a college football Saturday <laughs> is uh is not real high on the <laughs> yeah on you're the to do list, right? Man. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, that's not a burn window. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm basically trying to go through all those things and and think about. How is that affecting what we're trying to do for this resource at a law, at a landscape scale? And and uh, I think it I've already put a lot of it together. And it's pretty shocking to me. First of all, how few days you have if you have those limitations, and second of all, if you actually go and look at the data on whether or not, especially biologically, some of these things should be limitations. There either isn't any data to suggest it, or there's very strong data to suggest it is not a problem. Hmm. Man, that you and uh, I'll tell you this: that you and you and Doctor Chamberlain, y'all are alike in this point. Every time, every time that I've talked to him, and then this is my first time talking to you, I've had these instances where I'm just like, I, I kind of left, uh, kind of left speechless there for a second because it's just things that I don't know, you know, or like mm-hmm. it goes against everything I was taught. Um, I'll tell you this, we usually do this right at the end of the episode, but I'm sure for the folks that are listening to this that are, that are going to, they're very, probably the folks that are listening to this are very much going to want to know when this social media post about all this comes out. So instead at the end of the episode, um, if you could tell us, like, tell us now where, mm-hmm. where that's going to be, like, where, yeah, where, so where can they find that at? That'll be posted on the UF Deer Lab social media. So you can search for at UF Deer Lab. Uh, we have a YouTube channel that we've just started. So it doesn't have uh, much of a following yet, but we'll, we'll have it posted on there if you'd rather watch it that way. Uh, that, that's how it will be done. And I'm trying to have it right in the middle of nesting so that it'll be timely when everybody's thinking about that. Ah. So, uh, that that's when the plan is, but it'll be up uh, here in the next few weeks for sure during during turkey season. So uh, the the other thing is, Mike came on to my podcast and we unpacked this issue pretty well and talked about some other caveats, especially with spatial scale that I think are important. Yeah. And, uh, David Holly from Wild Turkey Report was on there with us and and was giving us the you know the private landowner passionate. Uh, you know, the passionate conservationist point of view from that side. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is something that I, I love that you want to talk about it on your podcast. You know, this is, this is important for, for turkeys, right? Yeah. And, and that's why we're all standing here doing this, knowing that people are going to be emailing me, telling me I shouldn't be saying that. Yeah. And, and I'm still willing to do it because I think it's important for this resource and I'm trying to get information to people. And, you know, I'm, it it doesn't, there's nothing that I have to gain or lose from this other than the resource as a scientist. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to tell you straight what the data say. Sure. uh, Right now, the best data that we have suggests that we need to open the burn window and be thinking about every day that you can pull a permits burn day and uh, probably you know, be thinking about that uh, smaller spatial scales is an important. I mean, we we really commonly plant two or three acre food plots. That's essentially what you're doing with the prescribed fire when you're down at that scale, right? You're mm-hmm. just providing a, a nice little, uh, really highly uh, sought after nutritional abundant area at a small scale. There's no reason you can't 
think yeah. at that scale with fire and it also makes it easier to enter it if you haven't been using fire right you don't have to burn a thousand acres or 500 acres or even five acres we could start smaller than that and that could help you get comfortable with it assuming you know that you get your training and and all those sorts of things you know it doesn't have to be as strong of a barrier as it has been to people and you know when we start thinking about varying the scale and varying the timing all of a sudden it becomes a much more accessible tool that will in the long run really benefit turkeys if we can get more people on board and i know there's plenty of turkey hunters out there and i get this all the time uh you, you don't have that available to you because you don't own your own land or uh you know, your own land in a place where fire is not a tool that, that is usable for one reason or another. And I, I understand that, but there are a lot of people out there that do have uh, the opportunity to use it who are not. And mm-hmm. those are, you know, those people are really important in helping us that. The other thing is that, you know, on public land, uh, there are a lot of places using fire readily and, you know, we need them to do that and encouraging them to do that is, is really helpful. So think about that when you're, you know, when you're uh, thinking about your local game lands or whatever that you hunt. Yeah, a hundred percent. I, well, I'll say this as far as, you know, uh, this podcast in particular, you know, I, when we started this thing, I, I wanted this podcast to be, uh, I wanted it to be entertaining, um, and I, but I wanted it also to be a source of information. I wanted it to be educational. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, um, uh, our, our own personnel within Primos can fill that educational void. If we're talking about specifically about hunting tactics, calling tactics, that sort of thing. Sure. But, you know, what we're, as, as far as this, talking about what we talked about today, my whole take on it is, because uh, again, you know, like when we've had Dr. Chamberlain on before, I will say, and I imagine the same result will be for this episode. We did catch some heat, you know, when we've mm-hmm. had Chamberlain on, because we've talked about, touchy um subjects if you will but although we did catch some heat i think with uh we got way more positive response than we got negative Mm -hmm. and i have a lot of faith in our in our listeners and i think that will be the same result with this but whether it be one way or the other my whole view on it is i'm it's it's the same as you i'm a fan of wild turkeys Mm -hmm. I, i love hunting wild turkeys i love seeing wild turkeys i love seeing wild turkeys succeed and if that means that I have to say that something that I've taught and thought my entire life so far is wrong because the science says this, then I want to be open-minded towards it, you know, um, yeah. because you know, facts don't lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you well, know, that, that's my whole take on it. And that that's my, my view on this podcast. And I've said it before. Sure. We always have more listeners during the springtime because mm-hmm. I, I guess Turkey hunters are just a passionate bunch, but yeah. No doubt about that. <laughs> I, yeah, no doubt. But yeah, we are at here at this podcast. We're a fan of wild turkeys and we want to see them succeed. And that's why we have topics like this on here. And we discuss it with folks that know about it like yourself. And I, again, yeah. I appreciate you being willing to come on here and talk about it. Yeah, man, I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, the, the thing about these kinds of issues, just to circle back, if you could, you know, what you need to know as far as a critical part of habitat for this species and if you can get all of that done outside of nesting great i'm Mm -hmm. not telling you you have to you know what i'm saying like what i'm saying is at the landscape scale if we eliminate that part of the burn window or the fall because everybody in the south is watching college football or whatever uh you know that that 
and results in less acres being burned. And I think that's probably more problematic than beneficial. And, you know, yeah. uh, I think that some of the audience may even, they hear different things. Like if you listen to Dr. Craig Harper talk, he was my mentor. And uh, we often have a little bit different message on that because he's normally working with landowners that are getting their, their burning done before nesting starts. Uh, but he's still on the, the fall stuff. Uh, so you may hear a little bit different message and I'm, I'm, I'm right here just telling you that fire is a critical component and at the landscape scale, some of these barriers may not need to be barriers. So interesting. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> oh, well, look again, um, we'll go ahead and wrap this up once again. Thank you so much for your time. I, I I'm sure I, I can, I can speak for myself and I can probably speak for a lot of listeners. Uh, when I say we'll be very eager to see, uh, the social media post and the information when that comes out, um, just cause that's, that, that really is wildly interesting. So, um, yeah, we'll wrap this up. Thank you again for your time. Uh, very much enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks for having me. I hope you all hear a Turkey gobble in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope we do too. I hope everyone out there listening to this does. Um, so guys, we'll wrap this up. If you have any more questions, don't feel afraid to reach out. Uh, as always, thank you for listening to the speak the language podcast.